Chapter 9. Censoring Fantasy. Part 1. Abolition of the Phantasmic. It is probably due to the influence of liberal Protestants that some history books still maintain that the Reformation was a movement of emancipation, whose aim was to free people from the repressive tutelage of the Catholic Church. Considering the multiplicity of Protestant sects, this idea might not be totally wrong, but it surely does not correspond to the original purposes of the Reformation, or to the ideologies of the main Reformed denominations, Lutheranism and Calvinism. In leafing through history textbooks, we often come across this explanation of the Reformation. At the beginning of the 16th century, there was a rich church organised into a powerful state and acting as such. The clergy and monks, for the most part, were also occupied with worldly things. Trade and religious articles prospered. Luther came to end the situation through liberal reform. He granted the clergy the right to marry, rescinded dealings and indulgences in the cult of images. He reduced to a minimum the external forms of ritual in order to concentrate on inward religious experience. This is an explanation that takes results for causes, and is satisfied with a moralistic point of view which, though useful in principle, is nevertheless dangerous in application. On the contrary, a breath of liberal air had been circulating in the Renaissance Church, which, through the cleavage between the modern mentality of the clergy and Christian morality, had led to many abuses. It was at this point that Luther arrived on the scene to re-establish the purity of the Christian message. Far from appearing as a liberal movement, the Reformation represented, on the contrary, a radical conservative movement within the bosom of the Church, where it had several precursors, of whom it will suffice to mention here the preacher Savonarola in Florence. The Reformation did not claim to emancipate the individual. On the other hand, it aimed to re-establish in the world a Christian order. It believed the Catholic Church, which in its view had become a temporal institution, was unable to maintain. This is why the reformers consider the Church to be a super-irrigation, which does not answer to the spirit of Christianity. And by returning to the Bible, they intend not only to refute Catholicism, but to re-establish the original purity of the Christian community. The revival of interest in eschatology, iconoclasm, rejection of traditional ecclesiastical practices, general participation in the creed, acceptance of marriage of the clergy as a malum necessarium permitted by St. Paul, are only a few aspects of the Reformation. Its most important result, which, under the influence of Melanchthon, will, in the final analysis, be less apparent in the Lutheran Church than in that of John Calvin in Geneva, and among the English Puritans, is the total rejection of the pagan culture of the Renaissance, of which the sole substitute is the study of the Bible. To attain this goal, the Protestant denominations do not hesitate to launch an intolerance which at first exceeded the intolerance of the Catholic Church, made more indulgent by the experience of the Renaissance. Characteristic of the Reformation is the fact that, recognising no cultural reference other than the Bible, it repeated a situation in the history of primitive Christianity that corresponded to a phase of its birth. 
a Jewish sect engaging rather hesitantly in a dialogue with the Gentiles. Far from abrogating the Torah, the sect accepts the Old Testament as a whole, except to state that the life of the Christian is located not under the sign of the law, but under the sign of grace. Now the Jewish religion is distinctive because, drawing its originality from the reaction against the Canaanitic cults, it has no graven images and it attempts to give a historical meaning to that which was represented in the neighbouring peoples as periodical fertility cults. Hence, one of the most important goals of the Reformation is to root out the cult of idols from the church. The results of this iconoclasm are tremendous if we consider the controversies about the art of memory aroused by Bruno in England. Ultimately, the Reformation leads to a total censorship of the imaginary, since phantasms are none other than idols conceived by the inner sense. Renaissance culture was a culture of the phantasmic, it lent tremendous weight to the phantasms evoked by inner sense and had developed to the utmost the human faculty of working actively upon and with phantasms. It had created a whole dialectic of eros in which phantasms, which at first foisted themselves upon inner sense, ended by being manipulated at will. It had a firm belief in the power of phantasms, which were transmitted by the phantasmic apparatus of the transmitter, to that of the receiver. It also believed that, in a sense, was preeminently the locale for manifestations of transnatural forces, demons and the gods. By asserting the idolatrous and impious nature of phantasms, the Reformation abolished at one stroke the culture of the Renaissance, and since all the Renaissance sciences were structures built on phantasms, they too had to be overpowered by the weight of the Reformation. But, we ask, what was the reaction of the Catholic Church? At bottom, outside the obvious drawbacks of an internal division, the spirit of the Reformation could only suit it very well. In response to Luther and to Puritanism, the Church embarked on its own reform, which historians usually call the Counter-Reformation. Far from consolidating the positions assumed by Catholicism during the Renaissance, this movement severed itself completely from them, and went in the same directions as Protestantism. It was along the lines of severity and harshness that the Reformation developed, from the Protestant as well as the Catholic side. The Counter-Reformation... The Counter-Reformation, however, has its own important characteristics. At the Council of Trent, which took place on the second half of the 16th century, the Church made clear its new style of behaviour. It decided to assign the instrument of the Inquisition, which had been created in the 12th century at the time of the anti-Cathar campaigns, and had traditionally been in the hands of the Dominicans, to a new rigorous order dating from the 16th century. The Society of Jesus, founded by Ignatius of Loyola. Henceforth, the name of the Holy Inquisition is intertwined with that of the Jesuits. In the spiritual practices of the Jesuits, the phantasmic culture of the Renaissance has revealed in all its power for the last time. Indeed, Education of the imagination represents the teaching method of Ignatius of Loyola in his Spiritual Exercises, printed in 1596. 
the disciple is called upon to practice a sort of art of memory. During these exercises, he must imagine the atrocious tortures of hell, the sufferings of humanity before the incarnation of Christ, the birth and childhood of the Lord, his preaching at Jerusalem, while Satan from his dwelling place in Babylon launches attacks by his demons throughout the world, and finally, Calvary, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. It is a question not of pure meditation, but of an internal phantasmic theatre in which the practitioner must imagine himself in the role of spectator. He is not only to record what happens, but to observe the actors through the senses of sight, hearing and touch. Secunda Hebdomada, Dies 1-7 through Introjected in his own phantasmic apparatus, the phantasm of the practitioner is to participate in a more or less active way in the development of the scenario. Loyola's exercises obviously derive from the great achievements of the Renaissance in the manipulation of phantasms, but here these phantasms are placed at the service of faith to accomplish the reform of the church, which amounts to saying that they are actively in opposition to the legacy of the Renaissance. In Loyola, we find the culture of the phantasmic directs its weapons against itself. At the end of several decades, this this process of self-destruction will be almost complete. Part 2. Some Historic Paradoxes I intend here to go beyond generalizations. The nature and progress of the Reformation on both the Protestant and the Catholic sides will be illustrated by some examples chosen at random. I have not tried to trace the history or the phenomenology of the Reformation. This book attempts, in fact, to record the concepts of a phantasmic era, their rise and fall. The Reformation interests me only to the extent that it produced censorship of the phantasmic and, consequently, a profound change in human imagination. In contrast to the first two parts of this book, part three does not subject the culture of the Reformation to a rigorous analysis. That culture will be touched upon here only as in as much as it still harbours vague recollections of the mundus imaginalis of the Renaissance, which it attempts by all possible means to exorcise and to annihilate. During the 16th century, we witness a very typical phenomenon, the ambivalence of the culture of individuals such as Cornelius Agrippa or Giordano Bruno. The representatives of the phantasmic renaissance are no less subject to the profound influence of Protestantism. Sometimes those two irreconcilable directions of the mind remain side by side without mixing. This is the case with Agrippa, not only one of the most famous writers on occultism, but also one of its most savage opponents. But there are also tenuous conciliatory measures, such as the one attempted by Bruno, which proved to be impracticable, and which resulted for its originator in a bloody defeat. In the 17th century, we observe two curious phenomena. The Reformation comes to fruition, and people begin to think, so to speak, to act, and to dress in an entirely new way. 
but this occurs in the Protestant faction as well as in the Catholic, so that despite the external differences between the churches, the difference between the spirit of the Protestant Reformation and the spirit of the Catholic one are reduced to empty questions, such as the dispensing of communion, the confessions of sins, and marriage of the clergy. The process of normalisation occurs now, finding expression in the appearance of a new culture with more or less unitary traits from London to Seville and from Amsterdam to Wittenberg, Paris and Geneva. At the very time the Christian sects born of the schism in the West finally recognise their deep-seated antagonisms, those antagonisms end up by limiting themselves to matters of internal organisation and have nothing to do with the fundamental question of the essence of Christianity. Without abandoning its millenary traditions, the Catholic Church moves towards Protestantism. For its part, Protestantism, without giving up the reforms for which it had done victorious battle on the local front, becomes consolidated in big institutions which, more and more, resemble the Catholic Church. The Catholic faith and the Protestant denominations have drawn as close together as possible without being aware of it. Henceforth, it is no longer a question of reformation and counter-reformation. Ever unwilling to recognise it, the principal Western faiths no longer fight alone. Side by side, they build a common edifice, modern Western culture. Individuals can still harbour deep suspicions regarding those who they think are on the other side of the barricades. In their total adhesion to their party, to their institution, they do not even perceive that those they consider adversaries resemble them, and that the conflict at issue is no longer the essence of Christianity, but merely a few matters of internal organisation. The pagan culture of the Renaissance has been vanquished. To that result, Catholics and Protestants contributed equally, unaware that, far from fighting among themselves, they had done battle against a common enemy. All of this seems quite simple without necessarily being so. The Reformation at its inception draws into its orbit, even though it disavows them almost immediately, an extremely varied series of movements of the left. On a scale that goes from liberalism to libertinism, from utopianism to the spirit of revolution, from anti-authoritarianism to egalitarianism, these movements had appeared as a direct result of the Renaissance and, in their most useful manifestations, worked in conformity with the spirit and sciences of the Renaissance. At the beginning of the 17th century, a liberal and utopian Catholicism still exists, represented by brother Tommaso Campanella, who, after more than 20 years of persecution, nevertheless finds a pope in need of his knowledge of spiritual magic. In his reclusion, Campanella is visited by one of Johann Valentin Andrier's group of friends. The influence of the Calabrian monk on the liberal Protestant movement, concealed behind the farce of the Rosicrucians, cannot be ignored. The singularity of the great thinkers who gravitate around this movement, a Robert Flood, a Kepler, a Descartes or a Bacon, is that they refuse to subject themselves entirely to the reformed religion and continue to seek their sources of inspiration in the culture of the Renaissance. 
we are at the beginnings of modern science, which represent a continuation of the Renaissance, insofar as the great discoveries of the 17th century still derive from the postulate of analogies between microcosm and macrocosm, and from a complex of Pythagorean ideas about the harmony of the world. We are also at the beginnings of a negation of the Renaissance, insofar as a spirit of the Reformation produces a substantial modification of the human imagination. As for the liberal and utopian movements, persecuted by the official churches, in a Europe rigorously moralistic and divided between two powers which, though enemies in principle, have the same essential spirit, they will finally gain an enormous underground influence in the form of secret societies. The progress of the spirit of liberal institutions represents another of history's enigmas outside the province of this book. In the beginning, Protestantism, be it Luther's conservative movement in Germany, or the Calvinist terror in Geneva, or the Puritan terror in England, was certainly no more liberal than the Jesuits. Nevertheless, we see in England the appearance of democratic institutions, whereas the Jesuits, gland, whereas the Jesuits, before their expulsion from Latin America, organised on that continent the first communist experiment in modern history, and possibly the only one that ever worked. It is not impossible that these paradoxes can be explained as an extension, or a revenge, of the culture of the Renaissance. Part 3 Controversy about Asinity. Before publishing his treatise On Occult Philosophy, written in 1509-1510, Cornelius Agrippa in 1530 published a work which refuted the burgeoning sciences. De incertitudine et vanitate scientiarum atque artium. It is a bird's-eye view of worldly vanity, sparing neither society with its defects, nor the professions, nor the sciences of the period, nor even theology and religion. In expressing agreement with the spirit of the Reformation, Agrippa announces his opposition to the Catholic cult of images and relics. He stigmatises the clergy's greed and evinces an intransigent hostility toward the Inquisition and all the monastic orders. Quote, insolent gang of hooded monsters. It is the very language, August Prost remarks, of the violent sectarians of the Reformation in the 16th century, and the general tone of the adversaries of the Church of Rome of the period. End quote. But Agrippa is far from confining himself to that. In the best reformed tradition, he goes on to say that, Quote, there are no men less prepared to receive Christ's doctrine than those whose mind is cultivated and enriched by knowledge, end quote. And he embarks on lengthy praise of mental simplicity. Quote, Let no one quarrel with me for having called the apostles donkeys. I wish to explain the mysterious worth and excellence of the donkey. In the eyes of Hebrew scholars, the donkey is the symbol of strength and courage. He has all the qualities essential to a disciple of truth. He is satisfied with little and endures hunger and blows. Simple-minded, he does not know the difference between a head of lettuce and thistle. He loves peace. 
He carries burdens. A donkey saved Marius when he was pursued by Scylla. The philosopher Apuleius would never have been vouchsafed the would never have been vouchsafed the mysteries of Isis had he not been transformed into a donkey. The donkey was useful in the triumph of Christ. The donkey was able to perceive the angel as Balaam had not done. The donkey's jaw supplied Samson with a victorious weapon. No animal had ever the honour to rise from the dead except the donkey. The donkey alone, to whom Saint Germanus gave back life, and that suffices to prove that after this life the donkey will have his share of immortality. End quote. This passage reveals the Christian tradition that must have inspired Robert Bresson to film O Hassad Balthazar, but it also casts light on Bruno's polemic against asinity, asinitus, the essential quality of the donkey. In fact, he openly jeers at Agrippa in his Italian dialogue Cabala del Cavallo Pegaseo, and especially in De Gloici Furori. As a defender of the culture of the Renaissance, he cannot accept Agrippa's point of view. According to Bruno, careful distinction must be made between passive grace and active contemplation. The saint is simple-minded like a donkey, bearing the sacraments of grace. The hero representing the excellence of human nature is a sacred thing in himself. In another connection, Agrippa himself gave the lie to his own ideal of simplicity of mind. In his youth, he had formed a secret society with colleagues at the Sorbonne who practiced alchemy. He seems to have been successful as a pyrotechnist in Spain. He had studied the occult sciences and, claiming titles he did not have, practiced law and medicine. He was enamored of culture and thus was antipodal to the donkey. Yet sometimes he evinces a reformist zeal which, though inspired by the group surrounding Trithemius, is nonetheless strange in an individual like Agrippa. In 1519 he was hired as town councillor of Metz, where, as usual, he made himself unpopular, this time with the Inquisitor for having forcefully intervened in defence of a so-called witch from the village of Voipi. He had no misgivings, moreover, about abandoning the substantial sinecure because of a quarrel with the prior of the Dominicans on the question, defended by Lefebvre d'Estaple, of the monogamy of St. Anne. On this matter, he shows a Puritan zeal, probably explicable by virtue of his contacts with Trithemius ten years earlier. Trithemius belonged to an association called Joachim, founded by Arnoldus Bostius of Ghent, which upheld the idea of St. Anne's immaculate conception of the Virgin. But how can we explain Agrippa's ambivalence, which is the more striking when we reflect that he had to leave Pavia in a hurry because he had expounded a treatise by the Kabbalist Reuchlin? Reuchlin undoubtedly belongs to the magic culture of the Renaissance, whereas the question of St. Anne's monogamy stems from the prudishness of a reformed culture. The reason is that Agrippa, like Trithemius, incidentally, straddled two eras whose contradictions he failed to grasp. He thought he could be a magician and a man of religion, a hero and a donkey, at one and the same time. Unluckily for him, he always showed the wrong side in situations where he should have shown the other. Had he been pious in Pavia and Kabbalistic in Metz, he might have aroused no one's hatred. 
But did he believe in the sciences of the Renaissance? There too, his own statements are ambivalent. In Lyon, Agrippa had once more found steady employment as court physician. Urged by the Queen Mother, Louise of Savoy, to draw up the horoscope of Francois I, he committed the inexcusable gaffe of writing to the Seneschal of France that he actually did not believe in astrology. Moreover, according to that horoscope, the king's enemy, the Duke of Bourbon, would be victorious within the year, 1526. It is not surprising that the poor doctor was once more deprived of his sinecure, or that it took him a long time to be sure that he had been, since the king's party did not wish the Duke of Bourbon to attract to himself an individual whose reputation as a specialist in weapons of war went as far back as his early youth and his adventures in Spain. It is not surprising that the poor doctor was once more deprived of his sinecure, or that it took him a long time to be sure that he had been, since the king's party did not wish the Duke of Bourbon to attract to himself an individual whose reputation as a specialist in weapons of war went as far back as his early youth and his adventures in Spain. At the beginning of 1527, the Duke of Bourbon offered Agrippa a prefecture in his army. Agrippa refused it, but not without drawing up a horoscope favourable to him and probably after performing magic spells to benefit the king's enemy. Unfortunately, the horoscope proved to be incomplete on one point. The walls of Rome tumbled down according to Agrippa's prediction, but the Duke himself on May 6, 1527 was killed because they fell on him. How can we interpret Agrippa's letters to the Seneschal of France? Did he truly scorn astrology, or was he such a conscientious astrologer that he did not feel he should interpret the information communicated to him by the stars in a manner favourable to the king? As we have seen, ambiguities pile up within him. Agrippa is no longer a man of the Renaissance, and not yet a man of the Reformation. Part 4. The Wiles of Giordano Bruno Giordano Bruno was undoubtedly one of the most complex individuals of the 16th century. In contrast to Agrippa, he is easy to classify. Bruno was a representative of the phantasmic era at the time of the Reformation, but the Reformation's influence upon him is not to be overlooked. At Nola, in the Dominican convent, he had bursts of iconoclasm which brought upon him persecution and rebuffs by the religious authorities. In England, he played the role of defender of the art of memory against Ramism. Now, in the Puritan view, the nemotechnics of the Renaissance were out of date and diabolical, unworthy of their general moral reforms, especially as they seemed to be linked in some way with the activities of the Catholic Church. Bruno, a foreigner in Italy, was no less foreign in Germany and in England. Agrippa and Bruno were both impulsive men with an amazing incapacity to understand the people and situations around them. But whereas Agrippa seems to renounce, for the sake of form, his past as an occultist and to enter the ranks of the reformers, Bruno aspires to defend his ideas even into martyrdom convinced that people great in spirit do not flinch from physical pain. Agrippa is too naive to compromise, 
but sufficiently realistic to retract his ideas. On the other hand, Bruno is too proud to retract, but having yielded to impulse, which led him down paths of no return, he still hopes to find a solution through compromise. Here again he sins not through naivety, but its opposite, excessive guile, which has the same result. We have cited some of Bruno's attempts to convert his followers to the use of the art of memory. We recall that his Spatio della Bestia Triofonte was a rejection of the signs of the zodiac, replacing them with a veritable cohort of virtues and vices. By such means, Bruno meant to give to the system of astrological memory a more abstract and Christian character. Bruno was not the first to have the concept of a Christian sky. The Middle Ages wished to replace all the signs of the Zodiac by others borrowed from the Bible, which Hippolytus rejected, warning against astro-theosophists. A Carolingian poet, the priest Opicinus de Canistris of Santa Maria Capella, proposed replacing the ram by the lamb, Christ, and in 1627, Julius Schiller suggested in his Coelum Stellatatum Christianum substituting the apostles for the signs of the zodiac. La Astroscopium by Wilhelm Schickhardt in 1665 sees the ram as the animal of Isaac's sacrifice, the twins as Jacob and Esau, and connects the fishes with the parable of the loaves and fishes. This was only one step removed from an entirely arbitrary interpretation. Opicinus de Canestris breached the gap by assimilation to Capricorn because his own sin was pride and sensuality. It is not surprising that these attempts proliferated in the 17th century when the spirit of the Renaissance had not completely left Western Europe and there was still hope for reconciliation between the austerity and rigidity of reformed Christianity and the sciences of the phantasmic era. I am looking at a map of the Christian heaven charted by Andreas Calarius for his Atlas Coelestius Seu Harmonia Macrocosmia, 1661. On the Coeli Stellati Christiani Hemispherium Prius, I see that St. James has been substituted for the constellation of Gemini, St. John for the constellation of Cancer, St. Thomas for Leo, St. James the Less for Virgo, St. Philip for Libra, and St. Bartholomew for Scorpio. In addition, the lesser bear was replaced by St. Michael, the great bear by St. Peter's boat, the boreal signs by St. Peter himself, Serpentarius by St. Benedict, Centaurus by Abraham and Isaac, and so forth. This effort by Andreas Calarius presupposes an exercise of the imagination very close to the art of memory, an effort only conceivable perhaps by the Catholic side of the Reformation. It is appropriate to recall here that the Inquisition itself made ample use of the weapon of imagination, only it aimed it against the culture of the phantasmic age. The Christianization of the signs of the zodiac stems from a process of the same kind. However, no attempt of that sort had any chance of success with the English Puritans, who had yielded to the abstract mnemotechnics of the Pierre de la Romée.
to the Puritans, who had cast icons out of the churches, an apostle or a beast of the zodiac merely represented idols conceived by the imagination. This is why Bruno speaks to the Puritans in language much better adapted to influencing them than the fantasies of Andreas Calarius. He replaces the beasts of the zodiac with abstract entities, but on that account the concessions he makes to realism are so great that the principal characteristics of his own system of artificial memory eventually become blurred. Part 5. A Single Reformation if the Catholic Church did not abandon its cult of images and the celibacy of its priests, there are other fields in which the Reformation, both Protestant and Catholic, arrived at the same results. We have only to think of the persecution of witches or the fight against astrology and magic. In its 18th session, the Council of Trent exhorted bishops to censor all the books on astrology in their dioceses. This decision was followed by the bull Coeli et Terre Creator Deus of Sixtus V, 1586, to which we shall refer in the next pages. In this context, the Treaty Curio de Le Astrologie Judiciari, published in 1641 by Claude Pathois, less famous than the Disputationes of Pica della Mirandola or Agrippa's De Vanitate Scientiarum, has the merit of showing us how Catholics and Protestants were in agreement about certain fundamental questions of the Reformation. Claude Pathois, 1587-1676, born at Vitry-le-Francois in Champagne, joined the Minorite friars. His religious career does not concern us here. In 1632, he abjugated his vows and his faith and became a Protestant, placing himself under the protection of the Duke of Bouillon, who guaranteed him a position in the Protestant Academy of Sedan. The Protestant community of Sedan had been there since the middle of the 16th century, instituting a totalitarian atmosphere that is well expressed by the wording of his ordinance of July 20th, 1537. All atheists, libertines, anabaptists and other outcast sects are accused of divine lese-majeste and punished by death. The academy, which deserved its reputation for strictness and dogmatism, was founded in 1578 by Henri de la Tour, Duke of Bouillon. It was frequented by English, Dutch and Silesian Calvinist students who studied under Pathois, their professor of philosophy. Pathois continued quietly to fill this post until 1675, when he was 88, although Sedan had been ceded to France in 1651 and, under the rule of Marshal Faber, had gradually returned to Catholic ways. The Traité Curio was published, nevertheless, in 1641, the year Pithoy's protector, Frédéric Maurice de la Tour, Duke of Bouillon, had inflicted a crushing victory on the royalist troops at Le Marfay. Pithoy's arguments against astrology are not at all original. He is only one of the many adversaries of the Genethliacs, 
and, quote, the harebrained, exaggerated, and wretchedly perverted notions with which the demons coloured them to cover up their diabolical imagery, end quote. He accuses them of making a pact with the devil, and asserts that it is the devil who inspires the diviners with all their predictions. Quote, that can be accomplished by addressing them disguised as human beings, by mouthing a word in the ear or in the ear of the diviner, by impressing on the diviner's imagination phantasms of the things they conjecture must occur, by confronting the diviner with letters, characters, shapes, signs and symbols which will fit into the diviner's reckoning, end quote. These are classic arguments which we have already come across in the Malleus Maleficarum and in the work of Johannes Fier, or of the Jesuit Martin del Rio. But the interesting thing about this refutation of astrology, published by a Calvinist in 1641, is that it seems to have been drawn up at the time Pathois was still a Minorite monk at Bracancourt in the province of Champagne. That seems all the more likely, since Pathois does not even bother to change his references, citing the bull of Sixtus V, Coeli et Terrae Creator Deus of 1586, which he uses for his traité in the French translation. It is certain that he believes it applies to both sides of the Reformation. Quote, Here we find a papal censure that confirms all we have said about astromancy and Genethleology. It calls them perverse, presumptuous, bold, deceivers, and despicable, and their art an invention of the devil, their predictions inspirations of devils. It censures and condemns both them and their works as well as all those who read or own them. What can the Genethleacs say to that? Perhaps they will allege that the priests the councils and the popes cannot excommunicate or anathematize them, or censure them severely on this account, to which I reply, as concerns their censure, that it can never be more legitimate, since all of Christianity considers their art magical. End quote. Protestants and Catholics do not agree on outward religious observances or on the question of the celibacy of the clergy. But in the 17th century they seem to be at one concerning the impious nature of the culture of the phantasmic era and the imaginary in general. Catholics and Lutherans, to be sure, are slightly more tolerant than Calvinists, but they believe just as firmly that the practice of any kind of divination is inspired by demons. Now the site of communication between demon and man is the mechanism of fantasy. That is why the number one enemy which all of Christianity must combat is human fantasy. Part 6. The Change in Ways of Envisaging the World The censure of the imaginary and the wholesale rejection by strict Christian circles of the culture of the phantasmic age result in a radical change in the human imagination. Here again the works of some historians of ideas betray an ineradicable prejudice. The belief that this change was caused by the advent of heliocentrism and the concept that the universe is infinite. 
There are writers to this day who assert seriously that Copernicus, or Bruno, which would be much more accurate, was at the bottom of a revolution that was not only scientific, but psychological as well. According to them, the finite Thomas Cosmos was able to quiet human anxieties, which exploded as soon as the belief in an infinite universe became generally accepted. That would not be serious if it were only schoolboys that were taught fairy tales of this kind, though they too deserve something better. Unfortunately, they circulate even in the most learned tracts, and it would be in vain to hope for their immediate cessation. At issue are made-up ideas so convenient and superficial that no one bothers to refute them anymore. They continue to circulate from generation to generation, forming one of the most tenacious traditions of modern culture. Responsible for this is a certain linear concept of the progress of history, which everywhere seeks signs of change and evolution. Because he advanced a heliocentric image of our solar system, which is closer to scientific truth, Copernicus is identified with a key moment of change, of evolution, in short, of progress. It is noteworthy that those who still maintain that heliocentrism and the infinity of the universe have had a disastrous effect on the psychic equilibrium of the individual and the masses also share those ideas, since they do not doubt that the guilty are men like Copernicus and Bruno. When we subject to more careful analysis the historic framework in which these important changes in perspective on the cosmos took place, we see that the Cardinal of Cusa, Copernicus and Bruno all have a hand in it. First, let us ask ourselves whether the Ptolemaic-Thomist system could have had an equilibratory psychological influence on the individual. Not at all, since it taught that we were located, as it were, in the garbage can of the universe, at its lowest point. In Aristotelian cosmology, the essential idea is not simply that the Earth is located at the centre of the universe, but that it occupies the lowest point of the universe, that it is, so to speak, the negative pole of the whole cosmos, and that in this attribute it is characterised not by a superfluity of being, but almost by a want of being. It amounts to less than what there is above it. It is against this concept that Nicholas of Cusa raises his voice in an effort to endow the earth with a dignity equal to that of every other star. In the Ptolemaic cosmos, the individual is, in a way, not essentially of course, but accidentally refuse in the garbage can of the universe. The individual in the infinite cosmos of Nicholas of Cusa is a precious stone contributing to the beauty of the piece of jewellery, cosmos, to the harmony of the whole. It is impossible to say why the latter hypothesis should have been more disequilibratory than the former. The same thing applies to heliocentrism, which the most inspired 17th century theologians accepted willingly. Cardinal de Beyrou, in his Discourse de la Stette et de Grandeur de Jesus, 1622, wrote, quote, This new idea, 
little heeded in the science of the stars is useful and should be adapted to the science of salvation. For Jesus is the Son, immovable and steadfast in its greatness and moving all things. Jesus is like his Father and seated at his right is immobile like him. Jesus is the Son of our souls, from which they receive all grace, light, and influence, and the earth of our hearts should be in unceasing motion towards him in order to receive in all its parts and powers the favourable aspects and benign influences of this great star." End quote. Two years later, in 1624, Father Mersenne, Robert Flood's customary opponent propounded more or less the same arguments, although he was not convinced of the astronomic validity of the system of heliocentrism. This indicates, as Clemence Romneau has well demonstrated, that a whole theological imagination might easily have abandoned Thomism and invaded the terrain so magnificently prepared by Cardinal de Beraul. That did not happen. A great pity. When we go back to the heart of the dispute over the two systems of the universe, we come across the same arguments that were still being repeated a quarter of a century ago, so that we are amazed that our contemporaries have so little imagination. The first argument that Smitho, a supporter of geocentrism, sends forth against Theophilo, a supporter of heliocentrism, in La Cana de la Canary of Giordano Bruno is the following. Holy Scripture almost everywhere assumes the opposite. Teofilo replies that the Bible is not a philosophic tract, that is to say, scientific, and that in addressing the matters it is only concerned with appearances. Smitho grants that he is right, but also remarks that to address the masses with speech which contradicts appearances would be sheer folly. And he borrows from Al Ghazali an argument often to be found in public print right after World War II. Quote, the purpose of the laws is not primarily to seek the truth of things and of speculations, but the good influence of customs for the sake of understanding between peoples, ease of human intercourse, the maintenance of peace, and the progress of the republics. Often, and in many respects, it is stupider and more ignorant to speak the truth than to be guided by the event and by opportunity. End quote. Instead of saying... The sun rises, the sun sets, it moves towards the south, towards the north. Might Ecclesiastes have expressed himself thus? The earth turns towards the east and goes past the sun, which disappears from sight. His hearers would rightly have taken him for a lunatic. True, Smitho carries this no further without maintaining that human psychology drew a sense of security from the idea of a universe arranged around the earth. Its centre, an idea that Giordano Bruno's system dispelled for all time, but he almost reached the conclusion because he was already on the way to it. The Puritan, Smitho, an adherent to the authority of scripture, was on the same track as his colleague a follower of Thomas Aquinas, but in neither case was it concern for truth that prompted this attitude. Both men found it practical not to disturb peace of mind by hypotheses which were too daring. 
Such reasoning is much more in keeping with the Puritan than with the Thomist view, for the Ptolemaic system, in accounting for the apparent movements of the planets, is extremely complex. By comparison, the heliostatic system of Copernicus is child's play. From the time that simplification, aside from the contradiction between the apparent and real movements of the stars, could only please the masses from the time, witness Cardinal de Beroux, that it could only reinforce theology, one continues to be amazed at the false argument offered us to justify a serious miscalculation in the interpretation of history. Unfortunately, de Beroux's open mind was almost the only exception to the spiritual panorama of the 17th century. The entirely Puritan fear of estrangement from God, as exemplified by a hardening of traditional attitudes, prevailed over the Cardinal's balanced and optimistic judgment. Puritanism, with its excesses, spread and invaded the opposing camp. Its dazzling victory was also its defeat, because, by dint of wishing to save the soul from the contamination and abuses of science, it only led to expelling God from the world. Blaise Pascal, born a year after the publication of the Cardinal de Beaux' Discourse, is the principal reference for this silence of God exiled from nature. Is there a polemical intent in the anguish of the convert forsaken among the awful spaces of the universe which surround him? In the feeling of being surrounded everywhere by infinities? Neither the one nor the other. Pascal, who even adds the little infinity to the great infinity, both equally mysterious and disturbing, seems to adopt the Puritan attitude and to fear it. Is this due to a yearning for the Thomist universe? That cannot be attributed to him. Is it due to the misleading effect the new system of the world will have on the masses? That is just as unlikely. It has been said that, to some extent, Pascal is the herald of a new era, of a new way of experiencing the world. This existentialist interpretation of Pascal errs by neglecting the known quantity which distinguishes that thinker in favour of a quantity which was wholly unknown to him, the future. Before taking a positive attitude towards a non-existent future, Pascal takes a negative attitude towards the past, which must have been familiar to him. He is the prophet of a new era only insofar as he himself contributes to its construction. His choice seems to us to be unequivocal. He participates in the Puritan Revolution, which, in its desire to return to its source, exerts an extraordinarily far-reaching activity on the whole intervening period. The period not only of the Church, but also of the covenant between Christianity and pagan philosophy. Pascal's infinity terrifying only because God is not there, is metaphysically and existentially antipodal to the infinity of Nicholas of Cusa and Giordano Bruno, to whom the presence of God is made manifest in every stone, in every grain of sand in the universe. 
proclamation of the infinite transcendence of God, the rejection of pantheism, makes up the Puritan content of Pascal's message. Insofar as this nihilistic activity is exerted by the Platonic cosmos of the Renaissance, the only modern philosopher to whom Pascal can be compared is Nietzsche, whom he seems to foreshadow. Let us not forget that Nietzsche made no distinction between Platonism and Christianity. To him, these two traditions formed one compact block, and his negation of Christianity is really a negation of Platonism. Pascal lays the groundwork for Nietzsche insofar as he adopts the arid message of Puritanism, and thus repudiates Platonism. The Platonism which conceived of the whole, even in its infinity as a living organism, what terrifies Pascal is precisely the absence of life in the universe. We might say that Pascal's anguish was caused by clinging to a concept of the world which is too abstract and inhuman. It is not infinity that frightens Pascal and those he addresses. It is the fact of being a Puritan. The idea of the infinitude of the universe is not the only one which, extolled in the Renaissance, strikes terror in succeeding eras. What a difference there is between the justification of human free will in Pico della Mirandola's Oration on Human Dignity and the agonizing sense of responsibility experienced by the Protestant Kierkegaard. The idea of liberty, which allowed man to belong to the higher beings, ends by becoming a crushing burden, for there are no longer any points of reference. As soon as God withdraws into his complete transcendence, every human attempt to examine his design runs into a ghastly science. This silence of God is, in reality, silence of the world, silence of nature. To read in the book of nature had been the fundamental experience in the Renaissance. The Reformation was tireless in seeking ways to close that book. Why? Because the Reformation thought of nature not as a factor for rapprochement, but as the main thing responsible for the alienation of God from mankind. By dint of searching, the Reformation at last found the great culprit guilty of all the evils of individual and social existence. Sinning nature.